the vast majority of our food and agricultural system is massive in scale and commodity driven, and that's not likely to change. But there are still interesting and profitable niches for value added opportunities. There are niches everywhere, especially as industry is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are spaces, there are bigger gaps in between for a specialty company to move in and solve an unmet need. That's Eric Rigg, president of Silver Spring Foods, which is the world's largest grower and processor of horseradish. Part of their success over the past 90 years has been in the fact that they're vertically integrated and today grow 70% of their needs themselves. So 70% gives us a competitive advantage on controlling the quality. We can play around with some of the, on the farm side, what we need to do to generate the heat that we're looking for with the heat index. This helps not only with product quality and that heat index he mentioned is called the zing factor that they developed themselves, but it also helps them adjust to consumer preferences like shifting to regenerative agriculture and offering more healthy alternatives. And where I think horseradish is really interesting and has a shot is because it adds so much flavor and it doesn't have all those other, you know, high sugar, high fat, high, high cholesterol that some of the other condiments out there may have. Integrating farm and food to make the world a tastier place on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive in, I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is a company that tells you what you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. The system came to me about a week after we had started doing soybeans. I had about 300 acres already through the machine at this point, our combine. And we got into that field and started going and the system started showing you got loss out the back. The The fan was set maybe just a little bit too too fast. It was We went from non-irrigated beans to irrigated beans, so the yield was a little higher. I changed one millimeter on the, the sieve and slowed the fan down 50 RPMs. That immediately changed about four bushel back into the tank and that small little change it changed everything you know i don't know how long i would have run in that field had i not had that and gone i need to make a change that farmer was jake smoker from northwest indiana make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's episode for a more detailed spotlight of jake and how he's using technology like FarmWave on his farm Join the ranks of farmers just like Jake who are deploying harvest visions in their fields to ensure that no bushel gets left behind. To put AI to work on your farm, just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you. Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting Farm Innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now let's get to our featured conversation here with Eric Rigg of Silver Spring Foods. This is a fun story to me, not only because I personally like horseradish, which I definitely definitely do on steak and cocktail sauce and just as a condiment in general. Uh, But this is a story about what's possible when you carve out a niche and make moves to vertically integrate. 
There are also a number of great insights here about product positioning to both consumers and retailers and some of the challenges and opportunities of processing and marketing a farm product. I particularly enjoyed learning about how the team at Silver Spring has taken upon themselves in recent years to really study the chemistry of what makes horseradish hot. And from that research, they developed their own heat index for horseradish. They call it the Zing Factor. So it's uh, kind of like the Scoville heat index for hot peppers, right? But uh, for the Zing Factor, one would be like beginner level or kind of wimpy, I guess I would call it in terms of hotness. Um, and then five would be the very hottest. So that would definitely give you that Zing that travels into your nose when you really get some hot horseradish. Eric and I also hit on some of the big trends out there like uh, healthy food and healthy food ingredients and regenerative agriculture along the way in this interview. Uh, he's the great grandson of Ellis Hunsinger, who founded Hunsinger Farms and Silver Spring Foods back in 1929. Silver Spring Foods is the world's largest grower and processor of horseradish based in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Eric's mother, Nancy, took over the family business at a young age when her parents tragically passed away while she was still in business school at Stanford, and she remains the CEO and chairman of the board to this day. She's led the company for over 50 years now. Eric worked in all parts of the family business before becoming president of Silver Spring Foods in 2018. I'll drop you into the conversation here where we start way back at the beginning when in 1929, Ellis Hunsinger began growing and processing horseradish and other crops on a few acres of land in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and Silver Spring Foods was born. He had grown up on a farm, so he, you know, agriculture was familiar for him, but he was a door-to-door -door lightning rod salesman, at least the story goes here in Eau Claire. And I think there's only so many lightning rods you can sell. You know, there's not a lot of repeat customers there. So he ended up falling back on agriculture and farming to support his family. And this is 1929. So this is kind of leading up into the Great Depression. And he grew all sorts of things, uh, horseradish included, but he grew, you know, corn and, and uh, strawberries and melons and potatoes. And it was the horseradish that really took off. I, I think one of the reasons is one, it grows really well here in Eau Claire. We're, we're near the 45th parallel. So the temperature, the, the, the cold winters, the soil conditions are really good for horseradish for it to flourish. And secondly, for economic reasons, he was able to sell the horseradish product all winter long, where a lot of the other crops were more of a farmer's market based. But you could store horseradish in, in cold storage after you harvest, grind it, and then ship it out all, all winter long. So I think that's really why it, it took off and was successful for him. And at that, at that time, was horseradish used in, in the, mostly the kind of the same ways it is today? Or was there another, you know, uh, demand driver for horseradish back then that may be different than today? No, primarily it's used as a condiment. It's a great way to add uh, excitement and flavor to food without all the sugar, fat, cholesterol, some of the other condiments that are out there. It's very simple. Our finished product is called prepared horseradish, and that's basically taking the root that we grow ourselves and clean it, grind it, mix it with vinegar and some salt, and uh, you're off to the races. Uh, some people do it themselves. They, they grow horseradish themselves and make the condiment, but it's, you know, it, it, it brings a tear to your eye in the process. It's, you know, think about onions, but even worse, you know, it's, it's pretty volatile. So it's something that we're able to do on a pretty large scale. I know you're, you know, you're the largest grower and manufacturer of horseradish products. Are you developing your own varieties for that proprietary varieties or are these kind of varieties that others can find on the market? 
So we use a variety primarily called Big Top Western. There are a lot of varieties of horseradish that are out there, and there are other growers who are crossbreeding different varieties to try to get different characteristics with disease prevention, plant health, size. We have dabbled in that, but we have found the Big Top Western variety to work really well in Wisconsin, which is primarily where we're growing our horseradish. And the other varieties are successful in, in other you know, growing regions, but uh, we've had a lot of luck with Big Top Western, so we're sticking with that. We grow about 70% of what our processing needs are. So we're buying about 30% of our horseradish from other farmers, and those can include some of those other varieties. And what we like to do is a, is a root blend for our finished product because the horseradish roots will have different characteristics. Some will be hotter, some will have, be a little more bitter. And we'll do a root blend to make sure that the finished product hits that zing factor and flavor profile we're looking for. Hmm. So different varieties would have kind of different zing factors? Yeah. I mean, think about grapes and wine, you know, different varieties and different growing conditions will, will yield a, a, you know, a different flavor profiles. So we can go in our root cooler where we have some different varieties and go in and, and try them. And I could probably point out some of the characteristics and where it likely came from based on the heat and uh, the bitterness level of the roots. Yeah, the, the comparison I'm making in my mind is like hot peppers, right? Some people like them super hot, super flavorful, uh, and, and others want them more more mild. And so uh, it's, it's cool. I, I never thought about it in the context of, of horseradish. It's really cool. When those processors are making something like a salsa, you know, using peppers, I know that the peppers themselves, you know, coming out of the same field will have a range of heat. Uh, different chemistry there is called capsaicin. Uh, it kind of lingers on the mouth and the heat builds over time, whereas the horseradish is ephemeral. It goes up into your nose and it hits you and then it goes away. You know, again, different chemistry, but the peppers have a range of heat themselves. So I think they have to do a pepper blend to try to get you your mild, medium, and hot salsa for consumers in that way. So I thought that was a good model. Scoville units for, for peppers and then the zinc factor for horseradish. It's, it's novel to our category. And it's something that uh, it's kind of fun talking about with with customers. It is cool. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, when I think about horseradish, I, I first think about the horseradish I put on steak. But then, like you said, you know, you've got you've got a lot of other uses there. Can you give us a general sense of your breakdown of where your horseradish ends up? Yeah. So so we're number one in retail, meaning, you know, an eight ounce or five ounce jar of horseradish, you know, in the refrigerated section of a supermarket. Those consumers are generally using it for the, the big hitters. That would be steak, prime rib, uh, making their own cocktail sauce with it for shrimp cocktail. There's a lot of people that will make a creamy sauce. So, so you add horseradish to sour cream or creme fraiche or even uh, Greek yogurt I've seen to make a sauce for, for meats and seafood. And then there's some, some unusual uses for it that I find pretty interesting. Um, so you can... Use it as a tenderizer. So uh, I've seen it mixed with mustard and spread over like a salmon or a pork tenderloin or rack of lamb and baked. It protects and softens the, the meat a little bit. So there's some interesting things there. Um, salad dressings. So coleslaw uh, dressing often has horseradish in it. Uh, Bloody Marys. Uh, a lot of people will add horseradish to Bloody Marys for a beverage. 
And um, there's a couple cheese companies that are using horseradish in like a spreadable pub cheese, which is really interesting too. So, you know, one of the one of the more more unusual uses for horseradish that I've seen is Triscuit cracker with peanut butter and a dollop of horseradish on the top of it. So it sounds a little bit bizarre, but it's actually pretty satisfying and, and pretty delicious. Don't knock it till you try it, right? Uh, that's that's right. I, I try it. So I, I love horseradish. I, I'm one of those people who's like, I'm going to push it to the edge and, and occasionally overdo the horseradish and then like, okay, I got to back off a little bit because I really do enjoy the flavor. Talk about the company today. Specifically, I'm curious about, you know, kind of competitive pressure either from elsewhere in the U.S. or outside of the country that is, you know, they, they are trying to take the crown of like the horseradish growing region away from Wisconsin there. or uh, You know, what's that look like today? I think we have a lot of advantages for years just um, being vertically integrated for horseradish. So our claim to fame is we're the world's largest grower and processor of horseradish. And that hard hard to say whether we're the largest grower specifically or the largest processor, but we do know that no one's doing both of those on the scale that we're doing it. So I think it's easy for us to make that claim. And that allows us to, you know, over the years figure out how to grow it well. You know, crop rotation, we'll get into sustainability later and some of the things we've learned over 90 years of doing it and kind of where things are going. So, so the farming practices and the land and the equipment allows us to really focus on high quality uh, horseradish. And then I think on the processing side, we've learned how, you know, with the zinc factor and what makes it hot and what are the best containers and what are the best storage conditions, what are some innovative products we can bring to market for consumers that our competitors aren't. Uh, I think give us a lot of uh, advantages. Where I see us having some challenges is, you know, we're a condiment competing with all other condiments, you know, ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise and barbecue sauces. And where I think horseradish is really interesting and has a shot is because it adds so much flavor and it doesn't have all those other, you know, high sugar, high fat, high, high cholesterol that some of the other condiments out there may have as an option to to bring flavor to, to the food that you're eating. So it, it's kind of a mouthful, uh, hard to market maybe horseradish and, and kind of where the name came from is a little bit of a mystery. Some people say that uh, horseradish was a misinterpretation of the German word for it, which is meritish, which means it grew by the sea, mare is in sea. Uh, that the English misinterpreted that as mare is in female horse. So uh, that's one theory, or maybe just the, the size of the roots kind of look like, you know, horses are big and the roots are big, but it's not really having anything to do with horses and it's not even a radish, it's it's a root. So I think marketing the name horseradish poses some challenges to us as well. Yeah. I I find myself having endless questions just about kind of the horseradish market. And you said something that was really interesting to me, which is how much flavor this product has versus, you know, no, it doesn't need to have added sugar or salt or it's it's not something, you know, you don't even probably need to process it that much. I mean, we, we call it processing, but processing can mean a lot of different things, I suppose. Anyway, um, that strikes me as the potential here for horseradish as an ingredient for a lot of other products that are trying to uh, make a healthy outcome with, you know, low fat, low sugar uh, type products. Is Do you see that as kind of a frontier for the company? No doubt. Yeah. As, as more people are conscious of their health and t- making decisions based on that, 
I feel like horseradish and mustard and some of the things that we make offer a great way to do that and not have not have to just suffer through a plain sandwich or vegetables or, or whatever it is. There's a place for us, uh, for sure. And I think it's important that, that we, we do, you know, look at health and, and what we're eating and diet. And, you know, this is a natural product. We, we grow it. And as you said, minimal processing, we grind it and mix it with vinegar. So, you know, vinegar pickled things are, are also, there's a lot of research on, on pickled things and gut health. And that, that is so important. And so, yeah, I, I do believe that that there's a role for us to play. And even in, in, in a kind of a recessionary environment, which it feels like we're kind of getting in, you know, that means more people are eating maybe at home instead of going out. So there's that, you know, cooking at home, sandwiches, you know, how to make this more interesting. We certainly got a big bump after COVID when, when that happened, when more people were eating at home. Maybe you can get a cheaper cut of meat and use horseradish as a way to tenderize it and add flavor there. Salad dressing. So... I think you're right. You know, it's not a lot of people are thinking about horseradish because it's kind of like what your grandpa had in the fridge and maybe used. So one of our challenges, I think, is is to get that message across to the younger generations. How do we appeal to millennials, which is a, a large demographic that maybe aren't using this category or shopping this category? And I think we have a chance because, you know, it's kind of exciting. You know, it's it's got, got a lot of... Uh, uh, interest in heat without some of those, you know, health issues or, or the sugar and the fat and the cholesterol that you get in mayonnaise and barbecue sauces and other things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. These interviews are always so much easier for me to do when I'm genuinely a fan of like the product and, and kind of what you're doing. And so uh, I am a millennial, although I'm I'm very much on the older side of the millennials. So I, I would say that, you know, th this is an N of one, but still a huge fan of, of horseradish. Um, you know, you grow 70%, you said, of the a horseradish that you end up processing and marketing and selling. That's obviously a, a cool opportunity to be vertically integrated, but also seems like to me a little bit of a risk, you know, with as many factors that go into growing any crop and with Mother Nature, um, it seems like that could be risky to put so many of your eggs in one basket. Can you talk about that and how you sort of manage that risk? Yeah, great question. And uh, formerly it was 95%. So I'm aware of that risk and I got stung when I first took over in 2018 that next winter came early. So a little bit about horseradish is we plant it in the spring and the fall, and we harvest at the same time simultaneously. So we actually have to harvest the root out of the ground, run it across our belt line, cut seed stock off, go back out in the field and plant it all before the winter hits, or in the spring is after the snow melts and we can get into the field and do field work. So that year, we had a huge winter, came early, we got frozen out of the ground. We play a game of chicken every year with the winter. The longer we wait to harvest, the bigger our yield. If we wait too long, we get frozen out. That year came really early. We were about 2 million pounds short of horseradish. That's a lot. So we're processing about 8 or 9 million pounds a year. So that's a big, big chunk. And that was all, all in our fields. In Wisconsin, you know, we're harvesting in you know, October, then the, the, the ground's frozen and we can't get back out and, and access the fields until uh, maybe that next April or May. So uh, that was a huge risk. And, and we were short that year. We ended up uh, buying a competitor out of Michigan. It's called Farmer's Horseradish. To solve the problem, we got access to their horseradish root contracts. They didn't grow anything themselves. They bought from other farmers. 
So what that allowed us to do was was bring in those horseradish roots early from those contracts, you know, take care of all of our customers. And then that bought us some time to, to get out into the field, which was late that year. That was not, we couldn't harvest until May uh, to get our own access to our own roots. But that really scared me uh, because of the weather patterns, because of the early winter, we were overexposed. And so that's when I consciously decided to, to cut back on our own growing significantly and continue to buy on these, these root contracts from other farmers. And these other farmers are generally in southern areas. Uh, we buy most of them from Collinsville, Illinois, so a little farther south. And what they can do is they can harvest in November and December and January and February, all the months that were totally frozen out. And they can harvest and they can deliver roots to us when we have our peak grinding season, which is generally the holidays, December, you know, November, December, January for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and, and New Year's. That's when we're grinding the most. So uh, we did hedge and diversify. 70-30 is a lot uh, still that we're controlling ourselves, but there's no one else we can really um, commission to grow it for us. Uh, there's just not enough root out there. So if we decided to exit the growing side, we would just be you know, millions of pounds short because there just isn't enough supply out there. And there's a higher cost to buying it on the market than growing it ourselves. So we can still keep our costs down when we grow it. So 70% gives us a competitive advantage on controlling the quality. We can play around with some of the, on the farm side, what we need to do to generate the heat that we're looking for with the heat index. All that research helped us understand what the finished product needs to be and now we can play around with what we need to do on the farm to make sure we hit those numbers. So I, I think, yeah, it, we have exposure there, but it's less than it was. And I like, I like this model because we're very collaborative with the other uh, horseradish growers. Being growers ourselves, we can understand what they're going through, some of the challenges that they face versus some of the other processors that buy horseradish um, don't have that deep background in, in the growing side. So we can collaborate, you know, how, what's working, what's not working to make sure that, you know, we are going to be in supply to solve those problems for those horseradish customers we have. I don't want to be short again. Yeah, no, that, that's got to be stressful, especially during the holidays. It sounds like everybody else is taking off for the holidays and that's your busy season, but it sounds like you've, you've, you've figured out how to manage that. Um, You've mentioned at least two acquisitions, I think, one in Michigan, one in Philadelphia. When you acquire another company, are you acquiring a processing facility and their, you know, their business in terms of their customer base? And are you also acquiring farmland, too, or are these pretty much kind of strictly processors? So, yeah, you're a great, great question. You're, you're either doing one of two things. You're going to be a grower or a processor. No one is really doing both except for us. Uh, there's a couple, a couple outfits in Europe that are doing a little bit of both, but uh, primarily you're doing one or the other. So the brands and, and the companies you, you mentioned through the acquisitions, we've had kind of three major ones. It was Bookbinder brand in 1999, it was Kelchner's in 2009, and then it was Farmer's brand in uh, 2020. Two of them had, had manufacturing capability where they were making their own horseradish products what we ended up doing was was bringing the production back into our main facility where you know closer to the horseradish where we grow easier to process it and we've done a lot of investment as a family into our manufacturing facility here 
So those two other facilities would have required a lot of capital investment to bring them up to speed with the efficiencies, with the food safety, with all with with, with the culture, with all the things that we were working on here would have been significant where, where we had already made those investments here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And so it just made sense to bring that production and that pound, those pounds here. We have all those capabilities. So they're, they're really strategic in gaining market share in a different region. And then we have a brand portfolio where we can now talk to a supermarket and say, okay, uh, we're going to sell this brand to the dairy department. We're going to sell this brand to the seafood department. We're going to sell this brand to the condiments department in center store grocery because all those buyers don't talk to each other. They don't care what's happening in other departments. There's silos in the supermarket. So they don't want a brand, even if it makes sense for them, if we sell it to the dairy department. The meat guys don't want it because they're not going to get credit for it, even though the overall store will do better because they'll sell more meat and horseradish. So we're using kind of a brand portfolio to help us, you know, get in different places in the store. That is interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a dynamic that if you're not in that business, you would never even think about. That's really interesting. Yeah, in some cases, we'll have all, you know, all three or four brands in one store in different departments and, and the private label. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we've got a lot of farmers that listen to this show. I'm just curious, what's different about growing horseradish than maybe if, if you've grown other crops? Or is it similar to, to a lot of other crops? So we have a lot of years of experience growing this crop. And what we learned with my grandfather and great-grandfather, and this is just general knowledge now, uh, but they, they had to learn the hard way, is if you grow the same crop in the same field year after year, you're going to have problems. So uh, crop rotation is critical for biodiversity and you can get nutrients in the soil. You can, you know, get those root structures going. You can help maintain better moisture. So there's a, a million reasons why having a rotation of crops is important. And so we've been doing this a long time, but we, again, we learned the hard way. And so for plant health and, and uh, yield, uh, we are on a five to seven year crop rotation for horseradish. So that's quite, quite a lot. The rotation crops that we're using in between years are corn and soybeans and alfalfa and oats and rye, sometimes snap beans. So kind of, we're always looking for rotation crops that we can, you know, one, help us maintain the soil biodiversity and also uh, that we can, you know, cover our cost to produce. <laughs> so we, we don't just lose our shirts on, on the, the rotation crops. That's not new news, but we've been doing it for a long time. And I think we're understanding more now why that's the case, because there's so much better technology and, and the understanding of the nutrients in the soil and testing. And so that's a big deal. Some of the new things that we're doing that are, are getting a lot of buzz right now uh, are some of the regenerative agricultural practices. So how can we do more with, with less? and be better stewards of the land for long-term sustainability. You know, and, and this is looking at not only that crop rotation we've been doing for a long time now, but now we're looking at the impaction on the soil and how devastating that can be. So what are some things we can do? That includes our tilling practices. Can we do no-till or limited till to maintain these, these root structures that we have? There's cover cropping. So having crops in the ground year-round uh, is really helpful. So we're leaning really hard into this as well. 
So after some of our rotation crops coming back right back in with some winter rye to keep that in the soil and keep those uh, root structures going and, and the rye will go down and look for those nutrients deeper in the soil uh, during the winter and then bring those back to the surface to give access to our uh, main crops later. Uh, some of the precision agriculture uh, now with data, so we're only giving the plant what it needs, not anything more or less. Uh, same thing for moisture. So, so there's really, really exciting new technology now uh, that we're looking at and leaning into so we can have basically fewer passes. We can be more productive with those passes. So that's less fuel, less wear and tear on tractors, fewer labor hours, but have a bigger impact on the soil and make sure that we're unlocking those, uh, those nutrients that are already in, in the ground. And what does horseradish need? Uh, and what is, what is existing in the soil? Uh, and how do we unlock those? So using biologicals, some microorganisms to make sure that our fungus and bacteria are in the right balance so that we can unlock those nutrients. So I'm, I'm just excited to take what we've been doing, what's been working, kind of marrying that traditional agriculture with some newer technology and understanding of what's going on. And the focus then is going to be on plant health and, and yield with less acres and less uh, energy and, and less chemical, less everything, um, and try to have it create this ecosystem for the long term. So I think that's, that's where farmers and, and those in, in this industry are really leaning into because we have to. I think we just have to. Well, Eric, I really appreciate this. You know, maybe my, my last question is just, I think it's really cool that this was started by someone who was selling lightning rods, you know, door-to-door sales. And, and I do think a lot about how so many things are started by somebody who has that sales experience and can really be customer facing and kind of understand the needs of the customer and, and create value. I mean, do you think something like this could be started today um, in not necessarily in horseradish, but in some sort of niche like that uh, with the right skills? And, uh, and then I'm also curious about, you know, how you see the future of the company. Yeah, there, there are niches everywhere, especially as industry is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and supermarkets are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What that does sometimes, as difficult as it is to deal with those, there are spaces, there are bigger gaps in between for a specialty company to move in and solve an unmet need. So there's innovation everywhere and, and you know data available to us and uh, maybe some tools you know, the pros and cons of generative AI and artificial intelligence, um, just better understanding of even for us, the chemistry of horseradish to be able to bring the zinc factor to consumers. So there's there's always these things that are really interesting and exciting, I think, for uh, even to make the horseradish industry exciting. You know, it's it's uh, seems so small, but there's potential here. So whether it's a uh, a ginseng crop or cranberries or some other crop in, in agriculture or new use for horseradish you mentioned. Maybe there's a whole new way to use this raw material that we haven't even thought about yet. That's really exciting. I think one of the challenges we all face is some of the labor challenges that, that are out there and, and how do you, you continue to be able to have enough labor to, to get some of the work done in the field that, that is required. So that's why we're focusing on on efficiency, how do we how do we do more with less, you know, moving forward? So I, I think that's going to be important for everybody. How do we deal with some of the environmental concerns? Um, I'm looking at us from a farm perspective, from an agricultural perspective, having just smaller windows to do the work in the field. 
So we need to be resilient and, and make sure that our labor and our equipment's ready to deploy to take advantage of that time to be able to plant or harvest or do whatever field work we need to get done. Uh, but there's some really cool innovations in hydroponics and indoor growing. There's a there's a company up the street, Superior Fresh, from us that's they're they're raising salmon and they're raising lettuce in two different buildings, but they're sharing the water source and totally self-contained, no matter what the weather is doing. So I'm pretty jealous about that because I can control probably 98% of the variables in there and, and I can maybe control 10. <laughs> the rest is mother nature. So yeah, it's it's exciting um, just to be innovative and curious and ask a lot of questions. And and then you have to have a little bit of uh, resiliency and, and uh, stick-to-itiveness to carry it through. All right. Well, I want to thank Eric Rigg very much for being on the show today. Go learn more about their operation over at silverspringfoods.com. I hope that serves as some inspiration for all of you ag entrepreneurs out there. Uh, certainly one of my big takeaways is that there can be large opportunities in seemingly small niches. I love kind of niches like that where we can explore ways to add value and create real businesses on often overlooked products and uh, parts of the industry. So that was really cool. I love featuring stories like that on the show. Another takeaway for me is something that I think a lot of people don't think about when they talk about growing new crops or uh, new ways of doing agriculture. It's that even for a vertically integrated horseradish company, a company committed to products like horseradish, they still, of course, have to grow and market other crops for their rotation. They can't just grow horseradish year after year after year. And some of those other crops include things like corn, soybeans, and small grains, which actually leads perfectly into today's spotlight segment. Segment with Jake Smoker. Uh, Jake and his family farm in LaPorte County, Indiana, which is in the northwest part of the state, about 20 miles off the southern tip of Lake Michigan. They raise corn, soybeans, wheat, and run a small feed yard uh, to feed out cattle there. Jake's the fourth generation to farm at that location and studied ag economics at Purdue. Uh, he's certainly on the leading edge when it comes to exploring and evaluating new farm technologies. In fact, he's already appeared on the show. He was on the show back in episode 293 as part of of our Tech Enabled Advisor series, when at that time he was talking about his experiences with Granular. I'm very, very happy to bring him back on the show today to share some of his experiences as a beta tester and early customer of FarmWave, starting with how he first came across the company, its technology, and its founder, Craig Gansel. Yeah, so it was interesting with FarmWave, you know, about the network and the people that you kind of interact with. We had been working with a independent trialing company. You know, if a company had a new new thing that they wanted to have done, you know, they get a hold of them, they get a hold of us, and we'd try it. They didn't come through that, but a guy I knew in that company knew another guy that knew another guy, and Craig uh, and his team were they were basically needing a combine that they could collect data off of. And they got a hold of me and I said, you know, that's fine. We're running soybeans right now. You can come out, but it's soybean time. Like, I can't stop. So, like, if you need to do anything, it's going to be as we're going or as I'm dumping on the end or something like that, you know. And they were incredible coming out. They they never paused the combine at all. You know, it was they had some magnets with some uh, conduit boxes and GoPro cameras strapped to the side of it. And it was definitely like the fast iteration style kind of thing. They put these all over the combine and they they just rode with me in the combine and, and drove alongside but never got in the way. They spent two days doing that and off they went again. And it was interesting seeing 
what they were doing because they were showing me the raw data coming off just as it you know there wasn't anything fancy of an interface or anything it was it was just raw data but they're showing me on an ipad you know what you're getting some loss on this side of the head you're getting some loss out the back you know what's going on and then we're sitting there tinkering with it and stuff and and I'm seeing this like as we're just sitting in the combine and they're just collecting this data that they use to build the models. And it's like, oh, this is this is pretty neat. They collected the data and off they went. And next year they got a hold of me and said, hey, we've got this really rough version. Can you try it out? See what happens. And at that point, then, OK, we, we've got a very rough beta version, probably even an alpha version of it, really. Uh, put it onto the combine, see where things you know, what you were seeing out of it mostly, you know, but then I'm starting to see the data coming back and the data to me has always been the most important thing in the operation. You know, I can't do it by gut feel anymore. Margins are too tight. So I got to use every piece of data I've got in order to to make the most that I can off that acre of ground. And seeing that data coming back, even in very rough, raw forms in the beginning, it was interesting that I could make decisions right there uh, immediately. You know, it changed how much grain I was getting. Last year, we had a full system deployed then, you know, the full commercial version of it. And I thought what was interesting is I had the combine set. The system came to me about a week after we had started doing soybeans. I had about 300 acres already through the system or through the machine at this point, our combine. And we got to a field and usually the grain cart uh, is behind me in the combine. And there that guy's getting out and checking seeing what the loss is and like, you know, things like that. And you, you kind of know, maybe not so much in beans, but in corn, you know that there's maybe some variations amongst varieties and, you know, changes like that, moisture and things like that. I, I never gave soybeans too much, you know, credence, though. We got into that field and started going and the system started showing you got loss out the back. And, and I'm going, no, I've got this set, you know, and the grain cart guys behind me going, it looks fine to me. We get out, we change some things, keep going through the field, still doesn't change anything, still showing loss. And I'm going, I, I don't, do I trust the technology enough to make changes? I keep tinkering and it's a three quarter mile long field. We get halfway through that field and I finally got it dialed in. The, the fan was set maybe just a little bit too fast. We went from non-irrigated beans to irrigated beans, so the yield was a little higher. I changed one millimeter on the, the sieve and slowed the fan down 50 RPMs. That immediately changed about four bushel back into the tank. And looking behind, looking across the head and things like that, you know, you're trying to gauge loss across 35 foot uh, of what we've got. And that that small little change, it changed everything. You know, I don't know how long I would have run in that field had I not had that and gone, I, I need to make a change, you know, because it was a small change too. Usually when we're doing big change, you know, you're getting lost on the ground, you're making decent sized changes. You're not doing tiny little 10, 15 RPM changes or one millimeter changes on your sieve. So that's where it started to really prove itself to me as the technology. You've seen it. I've seen it progress all the way through, but that full on version, holy cow, like that's that's proving its worth right there. And I know that if I have to go do something, check on the dryer and I put somebody in the combine that it maybe isn't as experienced with it, they can call me and go, hey, we've gotten to this spot and we're starting to see the system dinging at us. You know, what, what do I need to do? It's better than hey, we changed varieties, we're still going, oh, wow, It's there's a stream of you know yellow out the back of the machine. We've all been there before where something's off, but you just keep going, you, 10 acres later, you go, whoops. 
So that, that's that been interesting to see that progression. That's amazing. Yeah. And in that example that you were giving, it sounds like the difference is pretty imperceptible. Like you might have gone permanently without making those small tweaks. That's the kicker of it is I would like to think that I'm a good enough operator that, that I would I wouldn't have had that problem. But the systems prove to me that you're not that good, you know, or, or I need to recalibrate my version of what acceptable loss was. You know, those starting days are so maybe almost frustrating sometimes when you're getting started up. You know, there's everything else trying to go on. You're trying to get all the logistics set for that that season. And you're going, the loss is good enough. At some point during the setup process, you go, it's good enough, run with it. My uncle was very much, you know, like that of quit screwing around and get moving because we're losing time. Uh, and I, I maybe I have a little bit of that still in me too, but uh, it, it's helped me recalibrate what my acceptance level is. I know I can get it better. You know, before I really wasn't accepting of that, you know, it's like, well, it's good enough. You know, it doesn't look as bad as what the neighbors feel that's got volunteer beans growing up because there was a hot spell in October, you know. So, I mean, things like that, things like head loss. I never gave soybean head loss a time of day like it was. That's what it is. That's what we got to deal with. Now having cameras on that head and watching the shatter and everybody goes, well, a draper head, just run with it. You know, it's better than an auger. You're going to leave less bushels out there. And you still see, you know, there's been days where it's bright and sunny and the, the beans are testing, you know, 9%. And you go, the shatter loss at the head is too high. We got to stop, wait for a few hours, let the sun go down. Okay, now we can go back to it. But Without that data coming in and going, wow, I'm getting like five bushel loss at the head just because of it's so dry. It would have been painful in the past to shut down in the middle of the day, bright and sunny outside and go, we got to pause because this is costing us a lot of money on the ground. You wouldn't do that before. Not if you didn't have that data. It's amazing. And it's it's kind of like, a why didn't uh, why didn't I think about that? Or why didn't John Deere think about that before? You know, um, I know you and Craig talk often. Where else do you see an opportunity for this where, you know, you can visually inspect things on the fly and give you the opportunity to to either adjust something to to kind of optimize and, and ultimately save a bunch of money? You know, it's fascinating because that's, you know, Craig's always been and we've been kind of helping with it behind the scenes of, you know, what's that next step? Right now, it's it's counting and seeing loss and stuff. And I know they're working on things like spread pattern, you know, especially if you're in a no-till scenario, spread pattern's huge out the back of a combine. You know, how can you help adjust that? You know, right now, the system's not you know, it, it's standalone, it's colorblind, you know, it's not with one brand or the other brand. And it and it does all of its work on its own at the edge, doesn't need internet or anything like that, which is huge because we're in the middle of nowhere. You know, myself service, I'm lucky if I get a bar or two. But you know, I, I think the next steps are that that final integration with the combine itself. You know, if they can take and see what's what the loss is. And that that is automatically doing and changing and optimizing that combine as you're going through the field. I think that that's probably the last frontier when it comes to that combine, because then at that point, full autonomy is not too much further away. You know, they're they're doing work with sprayers and, and things like that. Watching nozzle pattern. We had the cameras in the system there a couple years ago on on our sprayer and, and 
you know that sprayer tips wear out, but you don't know to what degree they're worn out. And you start to notice their AI was looking at the degree of the sprayer tip and, and the nozzles and how they were working and going, yeah, we do have an issue on this, this section of the sprayer, the, the nozzles are worn. Would we have really noticed that? No, probably not. We would have probably gotten through another season on them. So it's it's things like that that are coming. But I really think this unlocks the next the the final frontier of the, you know, autonomy is great. But what happens when the chisel plow behind you plugs up and then it wads when the computer doesn't know it? You know, with their vision system doing what it can do, it can really do about anything, you know, as long as you train it to what you need it to do. And that's the final frontier. That's the next step is how do you use this system across the entire operation, not just a a harvest time component. And that's what I what I think is fascinating coming into the future. You know, we haven't had these big innovations, and I think the next wave is going to be this AI, this machine learning portion of it. You know, how can we be smarter with the data and, and use that in ways that we've never been able to? And I think that's what's coming next. Absolutely. Jake, I appreciate this. I mean, it's a good thing that we're finding excuses to get you back on the show because you should be a regular. Uh, but before I let you go, you know, anything you'd like to say to other farmers out there about this type of technology who might be on the fence or checking it out for the first time? I'd say, you know, for me, knowing the people behind the product has been probably the most uh, impactful for me. You know, there's a lot of startups out there and, and FarmWave, you know, they've been around for a while, but they're still really, I consider them a startup. You know, knowing the people behind the technology and behind the product, and I've, I've been fortunate to have that window to the inside, uh, you, you see how good and dedicated that crew is to, you know, the mission, you know, that farmers have. And it's nice that, you know, you've got somebody supporting you that's on your team. And you don't feel like that very often when it comes to companies and products. You know, a lot of this is is faceless, nameless uh, things. And to know that you've got a support crew behind you has been just huge for my adoption of, of their technology. If it wasn't for how good that whole whole team is there top down uh I, I probably wouldn't i would have maybe moved on with things when in their early stages but i saw how dedicated they were to the technology and how they you know when there would be a problem or would there be a, an issue how quickly they would work through that it wasn't like a well we'll study it and get back to you in a year or two it was change this do this move fast you know we've got a small window to work and we're going to do it as as fast as what we can and that's produced just amazing results so that team behind has just been incredible to work with and i encourage anybody that's that's looking at it you know step maybe out of your comfort zone just a little bit ai is not as scary as what as what maybe we think about it in the mainstream you know machine learning is going to be coming Use it to put more bushels in the tank and, and put more money in your pocket at the end of the day and, and know that you've got a good support crew behind you. Awesome. Yep. And to your point earlier, the whole design is that you doesn't interrupt your current workflow. Like it, it shouldn't be a big behavior change. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's there. It's running on the background. If you need it, that assistant is there. You know, otherwise it runs on its own. You don't have to mess with it. And the install, I didn't say anything about the install, but the install was like an hour for the whole machine, you know, heads and all. It, it It's colorblind. It just goes and it works. There's no setup. There's no stuff to download. There's no learning curve. It's a simple screen. Away you go. Super simple. 
Super simple. Thank you very much to Jake Smoker for sharing his experiences with us here on the Spotlight segment of the show. And thank you, of course, to FarmWave for the work that they're doing and for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. Put AI to work on your farm. Just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you. That's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 